one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, friends. Thanks for tuning back in for episode six. Sorry there's been a bit of a delay for this one, but I hope you'll agree we're back with a bang as I'm speaking to Jace Mullen, a paramedic from Colorado, about the differences in paramedic practice between the UK and the USA. Uh, Let me know what you think and let's do it. Hello and welcome to the Pre-Hospital Podcast. Um, well, cheers for coming on, mate. Nice to speak to you, uh, finally, after we've sorted out those technology issues. Um, yeah, I really appreciate coming on. Um, for the guests of the show, or the, the listeners of the show, could you just give us a bit of an introduction to yourself and um, kind of what you do in the ambulance service and, and your kind of background in there? Is that all right? Yeah. My name is Jace Mullen. I've been in EMS since 2012, so coming up on eight years. I guess 2013, seven years. Uh, I worked as an EMT initially in Southern California, then in kind of rural volunteer system at upstate New York before going to paramedic school in Colorado. Uh, and since then, I've been working as a paramedic in the Denver area on a 911 kind of third service type system. Uh, just primarily working as a paramedic for the last uh, two and a half years almost. Yeah, nice one. And um, obviously, we kind of met through Twitter. I've seen you f- fairly active on there. Um, so it's kind of, I think that's, that's what um, kind of triggered this conversation, isn't it? It's interesting, I think, to look at um, the differences in our systems, because I don't know about you. Personally, I've never had any experience of, of working anywhere abroad, actually. And from what I can tell, um, there's some significant differences between um, our two countries. Yeah, there's huge differences i think have you ever been over to the uk i've not but i've definitely had some things i say on twitter that just get completely like 
misunderstood someone's like this doesn't make any sense they're like oh wait you're american okay yeah okay yeah yeah, yeah. oh it's a completely different thing cool well so we've got a few questions or a, a few kind of topics to talk about i think it'd be useful or i hope it'd be useful um to, to kind of understand a bit more about the u.s system but um but also appreciate uh, there might be some american listeners as well and so i can try and try and f- kind of fill in the gaps about the the uk system for those guys as well um so yeah a few topics to talk about and um, i think the first one that's that would be um useful to go over is the kind of the differences in education so um you mentioned that you're an ent before um so i take it as emergency medical technician similar to we have here yeah emt for us is sort of the base level it's the least level of training you can have and still work on an ambulance um and it's not a lot it's glorified first aid essentially because so can you can you talk us through then your um like different levels or like the different roles within the service and like the kind of the hierarchy of qualification so it starts yeah. at emt i take it yeah so emt is would be the lowest level and like i said it's basically first aid they can give epi through an auto injector if the patient already ha- like has one supplied in a lot of places they don't carry their own um sort of the complicated thing with talking about the American EMS service is how different things are in different places. The saying kind of goes, if you've seen one EMS service, you've seen one EMS service and something's probably going to be super different somewhere else. Um, But we also have a national standard that's set by the National Registry of Emergency Medical Technicians, the NREMT, and they set sort of a national scope of practice. So EMT is the lowest. There is the middle step is advanced EMT, and that is sort of not really used much most places. Some places use it. It's basically an EMT who can start IVs and maybe push uh, like dextrose, um, and they pr- can probably give like an epi auto injector. Okay. Uh, or I think they can also draw up and administer IM epi from, or adrenaline, sorry, from, <laughs> uh, from an ampule. And then paramedics are... It's, sorry to interrupt. It's probably useful yeah. to clear up the epinephrine adrenaline thing um, early on. And and my argument for it being called adrenaline is that, that we have adrenal glands. I don't know what you guys have in America. Uh, I think we have adrenal glands as well last time. Oh, checked. okay. <laughs> yeah. We'll, yeah, we'll leave right. it as that then. That's cool. And yeah, uh, mate, when you're talking about um, auto-injectors, is that like a um, pre-filled syringe? Yeah, I don't know what you guys call them. We call them EpiPens. Um, basically it's a pre-filled syringe that it's what like people who have anaphylaxis or are allergic and have anaphylaxis get prescribed from the doctor. And yeah. basically it's a spring loaded syringe. You like pop a cap off, stick it in your thigh and it does all the work for you. Like the films. Uh, yeah. Like the films. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, no, we have a similar thing, but also in our service. So we have, um, so our cardiac arrest adrenaline, for instance, are pre-filled syringes. Yeah. Um, and I think they're also called auto, auto injectors. Um, but yeah, yeah. it's just, it's, yeah, we have, it sounds like it's got a little robot injecting it. Or yeah. but... <laughs> um, some of them have like a robot voice that will come on and like, seriously, e-pop, like, you know, like talk you through what to do, like an AED. That's it. That's pretty thing. cool. Yeah. Yeah. We don't yeah. have that kind of technology here. Yeah. yeah so mate, sorry, I interrupted. So you've got EMT, um, kind of basic yeah. and advanced and then, yeah. and then what, what do you get from there? And then, yeah, the highest level of care typically in the U S is paramedic. Um, so that title, I understand you guys have like, par- everyone's a paramedic and then there's slightly different roles or maybe we can get into that. Yeah. Yes. Uh, well, yeah. You tell me about paramedic and then I'll kind of tell you about our system. Cause it is, it's kind of similar. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of yeah. different roles. 
Yeah, so paramedic for us is the our ALS provider. Uh, they kind of are the bread and butter of the 911 system. Uh, basically, everything that you, uh, I guess, kind of ALS would be, uh, we do intubation, we do all sorts of meds. Uh, depending on what service you're in, you might be using a IV pump, you might be using a ventilator, depending on what part of the country you're in. Uh, some parts of the country, that stuff is gonna be bread and butter paramedic skills and other parts of the country, it's gonna be uh, advanced certification on top of that, whether that's a state credential in critical care or uh, something else, but basically all your ALS meds. Um, so obviously like dextrose, code dose, epi, um, amiodarone, antiarrhythmics, uh, anti whatever you have it. We can technically give on the national scope and then that gets whittled down based on what service you're working for. Yeah, so so um, it sounds kind of similar to the UK. So we have a we have a system where, so we've got national registration with uh, what's called the Health and Care Professions Council. And that's, um, they register a group of different healthcare or allied health professionals. And then um, for doctors, they have a general medical council. And for nurses, they have the nursing and midwifery council, well, and midwives. Um, and so the um, registered professions, um, which paramedics are, we all have our own kind of councils. And then with, within the ambulance service, and I, I think the, the thing is with that is that um, being a paramedic these days in the UK is um, less, it's, it's kind of generally associated with the ambulance service, but there's there's a lot of roles outside of the ambulance service now. So it's not uniquely an ambulance service job. Um, and, and then within the ambulance service, there's a kind of tier of um, qualifications as well. Um, however, that's kind of unique to services. And I think there's about there's over ten, I think there maybe twelve off the top of my head ambulance services in the UK, and so in my service for instance we have um, emergency care assistants or emergency care support workers, um, and they sound similar to your EMT kind of basic level. Um, so they receive d- depending on the the training packages kind of change, but kind of up to a month or two of training um, in fairly basic stuff, and then from there you have um, trainee and qualified uh, associate ambulance practitioners which is becoming a nationalized thing um, but it still uh, kind of has its unique aspects depending on what service you're in Um, and we used to have uh, like the training package used to be technicians which were a similar level to associate ambulance practitioners or vice versa and so we still have technicians in the service but we don't train new ones um, and then the level above um, AAP or technician is paramedic. Um, and then as a paramedic, you can specialize. And generally in most services, we have a specialty in urgent and emergency care or in critical care. Um, and, you know, you can you can work in those roles in the ambulance service or you can take those skills elsewhere. So, for instance, um, specialist paramedics in urgent and emergency care. Um, often work in ambulance in the ambulance services um, either doing clinical callbacks or attending patients that they select to attend um, or they often work in GP surgeries uh, which is family physician in American yeah um, in, in those kind of surgeries um, or in uh, minor injuries units and, and things like that whereas um, specialist paramedics in critical care which is the job that I do um, often work in ambulance services um, and uh, 
generally in a model where I work on a car by myself um, or they'll work in air ambulance services or um, A&E departments or critical care departments. And there is some crossover as well. So there's quite a lot of um, specialist paramedics in urgent emergency care that work for air ambulances, for instance. So it's kind of, it can get a little bit confusing. Um, but the, the, the model of paramedic and then specialist paramedic is supported by our um, college of paramedics, our kind of professional body. Um, and they have a they have a framework that um, has stages in development from paramedic to specialist to advanced and then to consultant. Um, and each of those titles are achieved um, through different levels of education and, and practice, essentially. So it sounds kind of similar. Um, I'm interested in the in the uh, kind of state differences because I had a bit of a read around and I, I read about the NREMT that, that you mentioned. Um, but so with us, it, like in the UK, the HCPC paramedic registration is really formalised and um, to the point that it's a, a kind of criminal offence to call yourself a paramedic if you're not registered with them. But as I understand with the NREMT, it's not quite as... Um, it's not quite the same, is it? Do you, do you have to be registered with them to work as a paramedic or does it depend on the state you're working in? Or It depends on the state that you're working in. Uh, so some states will set their own standards of what it means to be a paramedic and what education and qualifications you need to have in order to be a paramedic or an EMT for that matter. Well, a lot of states have found that it's easiest for them to say, okay, you would need basically national registry is not a license to practice. It's a certification of education. So it's saying we certify that you have met these standards that we set. So they don't have any like teeth in their legislation, legislation, legislation or anything like that that said that you need to meet these standards to be a paramedic. What they say is we certify the people that pass our tests to this level. And then states, individual states can then say, okay, you need a state license in our state in order to be a paramedic. Uh, in a lot of states, so like Colorado is one of them, California, a lot, of, the vast majority of states say, okay, if you meet the national registry and you have a national registry certification, submit that to us and we will give you in turn a state certification. Right, okay. Versus, so, other, yeah. Go and on, there's man. also states that say, we don't, follow the national registry, here's our standards, you need to pass our test and our like physic or our uh, psychomotor test in order to be a paramedic here. Fair, so is, is there much, um, and I think you mentioned that you've got experience elsewhere, but is there much difference kind of between states? So obviously there's the, the potential for there to be a vast difference, but you know, is, is there a lot of difference between being a paramedic in Colorado versus being a paramedic in New York? Realistically, not a huge difference. The scope of practice is probably going to be pretty much the same. Uh, and most, I think a lot of the states that even a couple of years ago were not re national registry states are now moving towards that. Uh, yeah. Yeah, fair enough. I think a, a similar thing is happening um, certainly overseas in Australia. Um, I know kind of five, 10 years ago, they didn't have state registration for paramedics and it's, it's something that's being kind of gradually brought in. So I think it's it's interesting. I think it's it's good um, to have that um, kind of standard of care, certainly for patients to 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 know that. But um, but yeah, it's interesting the differences. And um, you, you kind of mentioned education, so that's an interesting one for me. What what um, education is associated with each kind of level of qualification, and does that differ 
um, a lot across uh, amongst different states? Yeah, so National Registry sets the minimum hours of education that you need. Uh, so what format you get that in uh, varies. So for example, the I think probably the vast majority of EMT classes, so the basic level of training are taught as a one semester class at a community college or something like that. So one of our kind of not a formal university, but generally low cost state or municipal run colleges. Uh, so one semester is like four months twice a day with labs or something like that. Uh, my EMT class, I did a wilderness EMT class was my initial entry into EMS. And that was one month of uh, pretty much five days a week going to class. Okay. And then, so yeah, that's probably the, the quickest, most accelerated you can do is a month for EMT. And then paramedic is hugely varying across the board. Uh, there are some places doing a six-month paramedic class. So you come in with, generally those programs are the ones that do it well, require three or four years of experience as an EMT before you can come into their accelerated class. Um, but there's other places like Oregon, which is a, one of our, um, I believe they require a two-year degree to be a paramedic. You need an associate degree in paramedicine to be a paramedic. Um, okay. So anywhere from... You could go from being in, never being in the EMS to practicing as a paramedic in seven months if you were really pushing it. Interesting. Yeah, so we we used to have a system like before I became a paramedic uh, in the UK that was kind of in a lot of ways a lot simpler. So it was it was run by the Institute of Health and Care Development, so IHCD kind of structure, and they would train um, they would train technicians um, and. I, can't, I don't know the length of the training, but it wasn't as long as it is now. Um, and then you'd be, you'd be a technician for at least a year, if not a bit longer. And then you'd go, you get a, an, an IHCD paramedic qualification through them, which was, again, shorter than it is now. Um, and we, we've kind of had a big move in the last 10, 20 years to a um, university-based teaching for paramedics, so kind of graduate paramedic system which comes with its own pros and cons, of course, but um, that's certainly what I did. And from this year, I believe, um, to register with the HCPC, you have to be um, graduate qualified, uh, university qualified to be a paramedic now. So, And um, again, the level of training kind of differs. So um, it depends. Every university course has to be approved by the HCPC um, as a course that will lead to registration with them. Um, However, the the lengths of the course vary. So, norm like the 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 most normal the the most common course now is a Bachelor of Science, which is three years, um, in paramedic science or paramedic practice. The the title varies, um, and there are um, historically there are foundation of foundation in science courses, which are two years. Um, however, I think the HCPC now wants a, a BSc, um, so there's less of the foundation science courses. Um, and then there's less commonly there are kind of top up courses for people with experience. Um, so uh, guys that have been kind of medics in the military um, are able to access courses like accelerated paramedic courses um, to achieve a BSc. Um, but obviously the the workload is um, significantly more. You know you, you've got to achieve essentially the same amount of um, learning in a smaller amount of time. So it comes with its own um, again kind of pros and cons. Um, and then 
so for us the the college of paramedics are they don't they, they're really good at kind of giving um career structure but they're not universities and services don't have to follow them because not as not a huge amount of paramedics are signed up to the college of paramedics so they're not that realistically that representative of, of our profession unfortunately um however they do provide some really good guidance so their post registration career framework um like i mentioned has kind of specialist advanced and consultant as the three main um post registration um kind of roles and, and so um uh so for for me as a specialist paramedic um the requirement generally or the recommended requirement is a postgraduate diploma um, which is a two-year degree at master's level um, and then for advanced paramedics um, the recommended requirement is a master's which is normally three years full-time um, and then a consultant paramedic is normally um, more a position of um, appointment so you're generally being in charge you know quite high up in the service and in charge like overseeing a um, section of the ambulance service so you might be a consultant in um, critical care and resuscitation as we have or um, overseeing urgent and emergency care um, how, how do the uh, kind of specialties in paramedic practice work in in your well in your state and, and generally in the US uh, like everything else it's super disjointed uh, so in Colorado uh, basically Basic ALS is a paramedic, and then for a whole bunch of medications, and if you want to be using a vent on anything other than pressure support, uh, you basically need to have, uh, we have the like International Specialty Board certification, which will give a flight or ground critical care certification. And those are actually pretty well-respected tests and certifications. So you can have your FPC, which is your flight paramedic certified or CCPC, which is critical care paramedic. Uh, and those in Colorado, you get that, it's sort of like the national registry, but for specialty certifications in that you have to get this certification through a third party. And then you show that certification to the state and then the state gives you a critical care credential. Okay. So, but- Go on, go on. A lot of those things that in Colorado are, you need a specialty certification, you need a critical care endorsement are expected of every ground paramedic that graduates paramedic school. Okay. Oh, that's interesting. So, so what, um, so you, you mentioned, where, where did you work previously? I worked as an EMT in Southern California and in upstate New York. So, so, oh, so you've, so you've worked kind of all over. So, so the difference is there in, in kind of specialty. Um, so I guess what I'm getting at is you can be a specialty in one place, which would be a kind of semi requirement as a, as a paramedic elsewhere. Is that right? Yeah. So, so yeah, what, what is the kind of scope of practice then of say your role as a paramedic in Colorado? Uh, we can do probably a lot of stuff that would be horrifying for most people in the UK after <laughs> six months of education. Uh, so intubation, uh, cardioversion or synchronized cardioversion, uh, pacing, uh, running ACLS uh, arrests. So obviously like epi, we uh, do mag for magnesium for all sorts of stuff. Uh, I'm just kind of talking through my scope and stuff that we do. And uh, amiodarone for anti-arrhythmic. Uh, uh, anti we have uh, fentanyl and versed, uh, or midazolam, sorry. Fentanyl, midazolam, we have ketamine for analgesia as well as sedation. 
Uh, we're kind of obviously IVs, IOs. That's interesting. So, so, um, so intubation. Are you talking about a uh, rapid sequence induction rather than a cold intubation? So we do my primary service. We do uh, only cold intubations. So we're not using any so kind of induction in cardiac arrest. In cardiac arrest, essentially, um, and then we'll also do a nasal intubation, a blind nasal intubation every once in a while for whoever needs it. Uh, we also do surgical cricothyrotomy. So that is that is interesting. So that that level of practice is roughly what um, I'm doing in my current role, which is generally in the UK. So that's three years undergraduate, probably three to five years experience, and then a two year degree on top of that. So it's interesting, and I, yeah interesting what how, how does that how does that kind of match with the um kind of day-to-day practice of you know like the patients you see because i think g- generally in the uk ambulance service um most the majority of patients are low acuity in the sense there's a lot of social care um and not a lot of emergency medicine kind of critical care kind of stuff so in in my role um like i work on a car and we're specifically dispatched to those jobs and still we don't attend a vast amount of um, critical care jobs. So our, our roles are certainly, um, sorry, our interventions are certainly kind of utilised, but um, it's almost, we wouldn't consider it really a, a defensible thing to have um, interventions wise if we were working in the normal kind of dispatch model um, because we just rarely see those kind of jobs. So you, how often do you find that you use those interventions? Ah. Uh... It's hard to say. It's been a weird year, especially with COVID. Uh, yeah, of course. But <laughs> uh, we had a we just published a thing. We had like a we pretty much doubled our cardiac arrest numbers in the month of April, which was crazy. So things got a little crazy there for a little bit. Um, I think so. My system, the way it's set up, is we feel that for the vast majority of patients, uh, EMT level is not adequate. Uh, so we staff double paramedic cars uh, essentially 95% of the time. We have a couple of EMTs that work half on our like detox van and another half that work. So they do two days a week on the van and two days a week on the ambulance. So we are essentially like 200 something paramedics and uh, 15 or 20 EMTs. Uh, so we're almost always working double paramedic. And so obviously that has its own benefits and risks. One of the risks or uh, consequences of that is skill dilution. But even with that being said, I think I'm probably doing uh, two or probably about two to three cardiac arrests a month. Um, We've moved away from innovation in cardiac arrest because of COVID for we're doing our eye gels for our superglottics. And we're only innovating if for whatever reason the eye gel has failed, whether we can't oxygenate or whatever with the eye gel. Mm which is a super rare occurrence, it turns out. Thigels pretty much rock. Yeah. Uh, as far as all the other skills, I think in two and a half years, I've paced twice and I've done a synchronized cardio version once. And that's about it. Um, yeah, not a whole lot. So fair, I mean, it's still still quite high numbers. So, so for comparison in the UK, um, as a non-specialist paramedic, you'd probably expect to see one cardiac arrest a year, if that. So it's, it's very rare. And, you know, a lot of services, um, it, it, intubation is a kind of discussion in itself, but um, a lot of services now, or 
a lot is unfair. A few services are um, have taken the intervention of intubation away from non-specialist paramedics because, you know, it's potentially, um, there's potential quite significant complications obviously with it. Um, and just this, the skill fade is, is crazy because um, the uh, exposure to those cases are so rare. Because, yeah, so we don't, Paramedics in the UK only cold tube. There's no paramedics um, giving drug-assisted intubations or RSI. So, so yeah, it sounds like you're. I mean, that's the that's the kind of number of cardiac arrests I'd probably see. Maybe maybe a few more. Um, but but it's, it sounds like you do get a, a bit more exposure than in the UK. And I should clarify though that my system is probably one of the busiest systems in the US in terms of a per paramedic role. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we do with 200 paramedics. Uh, probably about, I think, 180 full-time paramedics. We do 125,000 calls a year. Um, so it ends up being pretty busy with a lot of BLS calls, but we also end up seeing a fair amount of acuity. Yeah, yeah. That might be interesting. My, I also work part-time in the mountains, so we have 45-minute, an hour, two-hour, three-hour transport times sometimes, and we do RSI with drugs up there. Okay. That's interesting. Let's get into that in a bit. <laughs> um, that is interesting. You you mentioned before, I'll just take you back to, you mentioned ambulances and detox van. What is yeah. the latter? Or what's uh, the that is a super, super specific thing to my system. I don't know. There might be two other systems in the US that do something kind of like it. Um, but the way that Colorado state law is written is that there is a provision for, uh, we call it emergency service patrol. And basically anyone who is simply intoxicated with no medical complaint, who's able to take care of themselves. Uh, so you can think of like the run of the mill, like someone's sleeping on the sidewalk and they're intoxicated, but they have no trauma and no medical complaint and their vitals are all fine. Mm. And they can tell you as much and they can stand up on their own more or less take care of themselves, but who may be too intoxicated to just leave them on the sidewalk. Yeah. Uh, we have a, uh, basically subservice of ours that's staffed by two EMTs that will take them to a separate non-medical detox center where basically they can hang out until they blow zeros. Um, they have transient and they have some nurses in case they go into withdrawal seizures and they call us back. Um, but that's pretty um, super unique to my system. Okay, yeah. So we have um, similar things in the UK. I never remember what they're called, but kind of... Um, so they have normally like large vans or bus type things that they um, set up in town centers where there's a lot of drinking clubs and stuff quite often so that's generally kind of either private services or um like standard publicly funded ambulance services run those so kind of similar thing sleep it off type setup cool like it um in the uk um being registered gives us a certain degree of autonomy so so a lot of uh, kind of paramedic decision making in the uk or so you go through a period that's supported when you first start but um for for the more experienced paramedics a lot of our decision making is autonomous um so and and it goes kind of hand in hand with like i said the low acuity nature of a lot of our calls um so kind of patients that are intoxicated or patients that have fallen with minor injuries um we would often discharge those patients at home or refer them to services or kind of signpost them to other services um, without any medical oversight, um, kind of physician oversight. And I understand that's, does that happen much in the US or is that, is that a different thing? Yeah, I think 
the answer across the U.S. is probably probably not. There's some services that probably one pretty close to 100% of the people that they contact will they will take to the hospital. I'm lucky that that's not my service. We do a, we're pretty well empowered to get people where they need to be and recognize that a lot of people do not need a hospital. Yeah, uh, which is. And we're kind of supported in our clinical judgment and decision-making in that. But that's definitely not the case in a lot of the U.S. I think a lot of places, because of the lower education requirements, don't trust their paramedics in the same way that my system does. Um, and you see a lot of people, people were like, there are other services or other things that people need uh, that they try and solve with a hospital. That being said, uh, in the US, a lot of the times, the only way we can get people in touch with social services or if they need adult protective services or further care at home, a lot of the way, a lot of times the only way that we can do that is to take uh, the grandma who's been falling more but doesn't have any new injuries today but like, can't really take care of herself. The only way you can re we can really help solve that problem is to take that person to the hospital. Yeah, uh, there's not really a good resource to refer people to. Yeah, and I guess to a certain extent, I imagine it's easier in the UK. Like I say, having that kind of professional registration makes um, allowing paramedics to do that easier. But also, obviously, we're a much smaller place, um, and so I guess um, kind of governing that um, is, you know, arguably, I imagine that'd be easier. I, I just kind of think so. So we're uh, the National Health Service, our NHS is. Um, struggling it's collapsing it's kind of falling apart as as i'm sure you can pick up on on social media um and i think a, a big part of um a big part of us having the autonomy and the kind of support to discharge patients and try and avoid going to hospital is that the hospital just wouldn't be able to cope if we took all of our patients in that it just collapsed the the ed departments um and and during the winter it's not uncommon um to have long waits just to speak to a triage nurse just to kind of get in the doors of the hospital despite the fact that we leave a lot of patients at home um but i wonder in, in terms of kind of transport times in, in your main role like if you do take those patients that are kind of lower acuity to a and e what is the how is does that cause a massive burden on hospitals in the us or can they absorb those patients and what is the effect on the individual do you have to travel like an hour um and you know how do they get back <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, in my main role, I'm in a super urban system. We have, uh, I think, 11 hospitals that we transport to. Uh, one of them is our county safety net hospital. It's basically a state-run institution. That's who I work for. And so they do hundreds of millions of dollars in unreimbursed care for homeless people or people who can't pay. Um, and so they're kind of our safety net. Of, they're probably the closest thing to the UK system that uh, actually, my whole system probably one of the closest to the UK system as you can find in the US. We're based for a hospital. The hospital is based by the state. Um, and so I think that's probably one of the reasons why we have that higher level of, oh, cool, you are in a car crash and you have some neck pain. Okay, cool. Let's talk about the risk and benefit and let's maybe not go to the hospital. Yeah, yeah. Um, and maybe that could be play into it versus places that are privately funded paramedics or their uh, private corporations that see transports as dollar bills. Um, but that the flip side of that is a lot of our hospitals are privately funded. So we have more hospitals that have 
bigger emergency departments that are more well-staffed because uh, in, unfortunately in the American system, the emergency department is occasionally a lucrative opportunity to get patients in your doors. Right. Uh, so to answer your question though, my average transport time is probably about 10 minutes. Um, and we in Denver are really lucky that we don't have any massive offload times. There's almost all, almost like probably 99 and a half percent of the time a bed ready for us that we just immediately unload onto. Um, and then from the hospital standpoint, I don't think it causes any massive issues. Usually if a hospital is not accepting patients, it's because of a delay somewhere else, whether they don't have any ICU beds or there's no other room in the hospital. It's not usually an emergency department issue. It's kind of further downstream. Our emergency departments are pretty efficient at getting patients in seen, treated, and dispoed. Yeah, I mean, that's 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 fair. And actually, it's not too different from this system. I think it's unfair to say that, or it's unfair for me to give the impression that the emergency departments aren't effective. Um, what I found, I, I spent a bit of time in um, a kind of team leadership role and I spent a lot of time trying to deal with those issues and again it's it's the same it's kind of um uh occlusions upstream essentially um and so a lot of the patients in ED commonly like 70 80 percent of them will have been seen admitted kind of worked up and um referred to the appropriate specialty um but they'll just be in A&E awaiting a specialty bed and obviously that and those specialty beds are taken up by patients that are waiting safe discharge and it's all the same kind of thing. So, so it doesn't sound too too different. Um, yeah, so I think the, the, the transfer times are, are not, I mean, 10 minutes is short for us. So in my service, I work kind of in the count, kind of country type area. So our, tra- our travel times are commonly like 30, 40 minutes, but, but certainly kind of London ambulance service, the, the biggest one in the UK is again, short transfer times. Um, it's, it's interesting, I didn't even, weirdly didn't even think to discuss the the difference in um and maybe it's worth avoiding (laughs) but the difference in in us working in a national health system where things are free and a a paid system in the us Um, oh yeah so i know it's a massive conversation itself but just kind of for interest how does that work in terms of ambulance service so because like we'll occasionally have patients um like you know foreign people over visiting and stuff that all ask how they pay for the service and, and to us it's a surprise you know everything's free at the point of delivery in the nhs um which again is has its good and bad kind of aspects but how, how do you think that kind of um that ha- having insurance and, and a payment system how do you think that changes kind of the medical provision yeah so in america at least we it is everything is free at the point of delivery still uh, so we don't, I don't ask for anyone's insurance card. I don't ask for anything like that. The ED will eventually ask for that stuff. Um, but what we see a lot is we have, I mean, probably not like a lot. It would be a surprising amount for you guys. of uh, Patients that have legitimate medical needs who need to go to the hospital for whatever they're, whether they're septic or they're having an MI or having a stroke. Uh, that are adamantly refusing to go by ambulance because they're afraid of the bill. Uh, so an ambulance bill in the U.S. will typically run one to two thousand dollars, and depending on your insurance status, that might not be covered. That's crazy, isn't it? So, so you can be in a situation where you're unwell and need to go to hospital, and then significant financial difficulty as a result of that. 
can with, with that i know there's patients that don't want to foot the bill um i kind of understandably but if if you couldn't afford it and you accept an ambulance and kind of medical treatment and stuff anyway um how does that affect people afterwards oh that is a whole can of worms uh i don't know i think it was cliff reed who someone explained all this to on twitter and he was like i am horrified i'm so sorry for all you guys i was gonna say that's that's yeah. I, it was a yeah. recent thread wasn't it and i yeah. kind of, maybe we'll refer yeah. people to that and um, <laughs> then go over uh, ourselves it's it's such an interesting difference though that i've never really thought about uh the basic i guess tie up is depending on what system you are in and where you get transported to it can absolutely ruin your life crazy it would be yeah Fair. Let's leave it at that. I'll, I'll refer to, um, <laughs> to Cliff we'll Reed's threads. Um, yeah. And so you kind of mentioned refusal during those conversations. So um, the the other thing that we have in the UK is um, I, I know, and again, it, I don't know if it's a cliched thing talking about the kind of um, leg- um, litigation system in the US. Um, I, I I don't think we're quite as we, we don't get as much litigation kind of in the UK um, practice. And so um, patients are welcome to decline or refuse an ambulance um, as much as they like in the UK. And, and quite often we go to patients that, um, you know, patient, low acuity patients that might sprain their wrist or, I don't know, had a fall and bumped their heads. And they will say they don't want to go to hospital. And that's quite a simple thing for us. You basically tick a box and, and leave them at home. And that's a generally accepted common thing to happen. Um, and even to the point in the UK where someone could take an overdose and be really unwell. And if we, if we deem them to have mental capacity... Um, I mean, this gets complex in terms of the legislation around mental health. But as an example, um, patients have the um, kind of autonomy to refuse or decline care easily in the UK. Um, is is that the same in the US, or does that kind of yeah? Go on. I think more or less in my system, as absolutely sounds super similar. Uh, if you have decision making capacity, which is a whole other uh, conversation that we could have, but. If you have decision-making capacity, you have the right to refuse transport to the hospital. Um, Where I think it gets a little bit more complicated is I think because of a lack of training, there's a lot of paramedics who don't feel comfortable with assessing low-risk patients who will kind of push people into people who are like, I don't want to go to the hospital. You'll see them get pushed into going to the hospital anyways by some paramedic telling them how their stub toe could eventually kill them um, and kind of scaring them into going, which I think there's a balance between informed consent and, hey, here are the risks. Reasonably, you need to be able to accept those risks. Okay, cool. Sign here. Have a good day. Call back if you need us. And blowing those risks completely out of proportion yeah. to bring them to the hospital. Yeah, and I think, <clears throat> to be honest with you, I think that, that sounds similar to what we have here. Certainly, f- for me as a new paramedic, I think, I, I don't know. I, so I was kind of, how old was I? I was still what now I'd consider fairly young, like 22, 23 when I qualified. And so going into that role of having some autonomy, and we, we weren't as supported as paramedics are now. Um, so we could, now we have kind of supported discharge and stuff. But when I first qualified, that you could just discharge patients. And that was really daunting for me. So I, I'd kind of slip into the um, to the mindset of trying to convince patients to go to hospital unnecessarily often. And I think it's, you know, it's something you develop, isn't it, as you, as you become kind of a bit more mature and experienced as a clinician. Um, yeah, it's a difficult. I, th- I think there's, there must be something culturally that, that leads people to do that. But, um, but I, yeah, I certainly think that's um, not dissimilar to the UK. And we have, like I say, the, the kind of nature of the calls we go to 
um, kind of means that the the amount of concentration on discharge and referral we, we've got quite a lot of work around that and so in terms of so as a, as a newly qualified paramedic now like most services um, in the UK when you get you qualify as a paramedic or you get your degree you get your first job with an ambulance service and then you're going to an NQP a newly qualified paramedic um, position which is a slightly um, lower paid banding um, and that's a kind of supported um, and if you want to put a negative term on it like restricted practice and so the the interventions you can provide are the same as any other paramedic however your autonomy in terms of discharge and referral is different um, and so you can't discharge as many patients as autonomously but but most services then have a um, clinical desk to support those staff uh, and so you ha again specialist paramedics or experienced paramedics um, will work in our control room or in different hubs around the kind of county and um, they'll provide callbacks to share a decision in terms of discharge and to be fair to like that's not a process only for NQPs like myself as an experienced specialist paramedic um, obviously I'm I mainly deal with critical care patients so when I am with a lower acuity a kind of urgent and emergency care situation that I'm not used to I've still utilized those pathways um, to kind of share a share a discharge decision um, so yeah I, I, like I say I think that the differences aren't I thought there'd be a lot more differences than, than it turns out but that may just yeah. be like you say where you work and I think one of the, we have something similar for our really complicated refusals or if we're on scene, we're in over our heads and don't really know um, what we should be doing or kind of we're looking at something we're like, what is this? Uh, we are able to call a base physician. So I think one of the big differences where you guys call another paramedic, which sounds awesome. Uh, we call a physician who's either a fourth year resident or an attending at our base hospital. And we can talk so, to hey sorry resident and attending so attending is kind of highest level right so our yeah that'd be like consultant i yeah, think yeah, yeah. yeah cool. and then uh fourth year resident would be the highest year of specialty training in emergency medicine yeah yeah so it's, it's something we've i mean certain so it's, it's different between different services certainly in the past we've had gps to so kind of family physicians working in our control room providing those callbacks and again i think there's pros and cons i, I don't know your thoughts i think Calling a paramedic is really good because they understand a paramedic assessment and mindset and things. Um, but generally, I don't know how much of it is um, kind of myth and how much of it is true, but it's generally considered that a doctor is much more protected in leaving patients at home and discharging than paramedics are. Although a lot of that is a myth, I think. Yeah, <laughs> but that's sort of how we see it as well. We do. Yeah. We talk to the doctor and then if the doctor says it's cool, then we feel like it's off of our shoulders and I'm not sure yeah how true that is. yeah no it doesn't sound dissimilar well whilst we're on the topic of the kind of legal uh, side of things then um so <clears throat> in the uk um in terms of drug administration as a paramedic we have um probably about 30 40 drugs off the top of my head um and so so drug administration in the uk is regulated by um the a kind of government legislation mhra which is medicine I'm not going to try to remember what it stands for, but there's it. There's so essentially you have to be a, a essentially a prescriber. So you have to be a doctor that can prescribe to administer medications, um, and then as other allied health professions have developed, um, there's been kind of 
um, subcategories in that legislation to allow non-prescribers to give drugs. And so we have two main kind of schedules, as they're called. Um, Schedule 17 is um, the medications that we can, uh, or exemptions um, from prescription that we can give as paramedics and that kind of nurses and midwives and people can administer um, without having to be a prescriber. And they include things like um, metoclopramide, adrenaline, uh, lignocaine, paracetamol, sodium chloride, things like that. Um, that we can give we're legally allowed to give for the immediate and necessary treatment of sick or injured people i think is the terminology and then there's schedule 19 um, which drugs that anyone can give in an emergency and that's like someone's own EpiPen or um, like a glyco glycogen injection you know the stuff stuff like that um and then so so we have um then a pocket like what well, we used to be a pocket book generally is an app now but it's a guidance around those medications and that's um put together by what's called the joint royal college's ambulance liaison committee um and so that's like the kind of chiefs of all the ambulance services get together in a meeting the jared Health guidelines yeah yeah exactly okay cool. and so they get together and they kind of put together guidance about when drugs are indicated when they're contraindicated and you know all that gives us a bit more kind of guidance um and so there's probably about 30 or 40 standard paramedic medications. But then on top of that, we have things called um, PGDs, which are patient group directives. Um, and they are ways that we can give medications not listed in the MHRA exemptions um, on the agreement of our kind of medical director of the service, who's a doctor, um, and our pharmacist and people. And so, and they're much more prescriptive because it's a legal exemption. Um, or it's a kind of le- uh, prescriptive legal kind of document and so an example of that would be tranexamic acid or um, for us in, in specialty roles things like ketamine and midazolam that we give they're all on PGDs and um, and so depending on your role um, you'll kind of have an extended um, list of drugs that we can give so it, like I say in my role there are things like um, ketamine, midazolam, calcium um uh, some antibiotics, uh, syntometrin for, for postpartum hemorrhage and, and those kind of things that are outside the normal um, medications that we give. And they're very prescriptive in the sense that rather than just being indicated for sick or injured patients, they have to be like, uh, you know, adult. So so we've got three different PGDs for ketamine and one is for analgesia, one is for sedation and one is for post-ross sedation. So they're all very prescriptive. Um, how, how does that work in the US? Um, do you have certain drugs that you can give as a paramedic or do you have to get that authorized or how does that kind of work? So I can talk to Colorado, which like I said, yeah. um, so for example, I guess the most free state would be Texas. Um, and they are what they call, uh, what is it? It's physician delegated care or delegated practice. So there is no state law that says here's what paramedics can and can't do the law says whatever a physician overseeing paramedics wants their paramedics to do, they can do. Um, So that's why you see Texas doing all sorts of stuff. They're doing finger thoracostomies in the field. They're doing a lot of whole blood. They're doing um, crazy meds for crazy indications. And it's because uh, Texas basically lets the physician overseeing the service, let paramedics do whatever they want to do. Right. In Colorado, we have um, a state, legislated maximum scope so it says paramedics can give these drugs and it's probably a relatively similar list to what your 
uh, paramedics are able to give. Um, and so that's going to be everything like our adrenaline and our magnesium and our calcium and our uh, like undensitron and uh, midazolam and fentanyl are all on that. Right. Okay. Um, and then if we want to do things that are outside of that, then our medical director sounds like super similar to your PGDs uh, can get a waiver from the state that says we have a need for this medication that's not on the state formulary um, and we're going to use it for these indications. And it sounds actually super similar to that because yeah, ketamine yeah. is the huge one on that. Um, whereas with something like haloperidol, I can, or even like midazolam, I'm able to call my base physician and be like, hey, my protocol says, doesn't have anything about this situation, but this person is having abdominal pain and nausea and they're allergic to our, they like can't have fentanyl for whatever reason and they're allergic to our anti-emetic. How do you feel about me giving um, some haloperidol for their abdominal pain and nausea? And they can say yes, even though it's not in our like protocol of abdominal pain or analgesia or our haloperidol uh, protocol. But for uh, ketamine and for systems that are doing RSI, it's, we have two different waivers for ketamine. We have one for analgesia and we have one for sedation. Um, and they are this patient population between this age and this age presenting with this for these reasons, you can give ketamine. And you're not, we're not allowed to go outside of that. We can't say, call, hey, this is status epilepticus. Um, I read this paper once that said that I should be giving ketamine for this, right? We're not able to do that yeah, to yeah. the same degree we're able to for the rest of our formulary. Yeah. So yeah, again, it does sound it does sound very similar. I think um, so. So the other thing that we have in the UK is this, and I noticed it was something that's asked on Twitter, um, and I'll probably I'm kind of talking out of turn as I'm not a prescriber myself. But again, as these roles have developed, is uh, we have this thing about non-medical prescribing. So um, experienced nurses, paramedics, and other kind of allied health professionals can then you can do a, a course in non-medical prescribing, um, which allows a kind of more flexible administration of drugs outside of those exemptions um and, but there's still a formulary of drugs that you're allowed to prescribe as a non-medical prescriber um and then that is again complicated by how that fits into legislation and things um but that's about as much as i can go into that because <laughs> i don't fully understand it myself but yeah. do, do you have that kind of extension in where, where you work or anywhere in the us that you're aware of there's nowhere in the U.S. that I know of that's doing paramedic-initiated prescriptions, no. Um, there's nowhere like, okay, cool, well, we're going to leave you here at home. Here's a prescription for your antibiotic or whatever. That's not yeah. a thing that, even in like the super heavy community paramedicine areas, I don't think that's happening. And if it is, it's because there's a higher or like a advanced practice provider. So like a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant who are kind of our I can't, I don't know how to get into that, but um, they're basically like advanced practice providers. They're not physicians, but they can do a lot of the same thing with physicians. And so there are systems I'm sure that have them showing up on a scene and they're able to do more of like a discharge at home with a prescription, but I don't think paramedics are doing that anywhere. Yeah. Okay. I mean, like I say, it's, it's kind of rare and it's certainly not an, generally not an ambulance service thing. The, the, the people that are non-medical prescribers are generally working um, alongside doctors in, in the most case you know kind of in hospital or, or in uh gp practices kind of family physician practices um cool so again it sounds kind of similar this is not as um not as strange as i thought it'd be to be, <laughs> to be honest um i guess the last kind of 
thing that um in fact there's a there's a lot i think we could dig into but um we probably need another few hours to talk about rsi mm-hmm. uh, yeah. <laughs> but um i think it'd be use it'd be interesting to go over like what is a, a, a cliched question like what is a day in the life of you like on shift like what are the kind of patients you're seeing how do you respond to them you mentioned there's two paramedics on a car um but but how does that kind of work kind of day to day yeah my system is probably pretty unique in the u.s among double medic systems that we don't trade uh call to call we trade day to day so if you're the and there's no like rule like if you wanted to do card call to call or if you want to do half and half whatever um no one really cares but the kind of um intro or like the expectation going in is that you're going to be either the attending paramedic or the driving paramedic all day. Um, and we have uh, one thing that makes my system really fun to work in is that the roles between who's driving and who's attending are really well codified. So what, if you're the attending paramedic, your job is direct patient care and the driving paramedic deals with everything else. So they deal with interviewing family, making like planning the extrication, doing all of that stuff. Um, and it works really well, I think having, the roles and expectations of which role you're in um, super well uh, like sorted out already. Um, my day, I work four 10-hour shifts and so they're all in a row so I am usually driving two days and attending two days. Um, and so like if I'm attending that day, I show up, check out my ambulance, um, we leave from, or we come to the hospital that I work for and we leave from there. Um, we're system status, so we can end up anywhere in the city. We get posted at street corners and you're never or rarely going to be in the same parts of the city two days in a row. Um, like I said, we're some of the busiest paramedics in the U.S. I mean, I'm sure there's systems or units in other systems that are busier, but um, in a 10-hour shift, I can expect to do anywhere between uh, 8 and 12 to 13 calls. Um, a lot of them are going to be BLS calls. There's going to be uh, showing up and running a down party, which is just someone sleeping on a sidewalk that a uh, bystander called. And that disposition is usually pretty easy. If they can get up and walk and they're not like clinically intoxicated, then we let them go. Um, if they are intoxicated, then we either take them to the hospital or uh, detox them. Um, but then we're also running usually good for one or two like pretty sick call or patients a week probably while you're attending whether it's a stroke and MI um, and then uh, we have some good trauma in the city yeah that's one of the things that we do well is well it's we have a lot of shootings right which is not a big thing okay oh yeah so uh, it's another thing that um has come up on Cliff Reed's chats isn't it just yeah don't don't think about that at all <laughs> in the UK to be honest yeah interesting uh, one of the things that my system takes a lot of pride in doing well is running uh, trauma really, really well. Okay. Uh, but that's unique to us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, so so with us, and you know, I mentioned we we do, you know, non-specialist practice is rare to see kind of real high acuity jobs, um, and I think, yeah, trauma is extremely rare. Um, although, I guess it, it depends where you work, doesn't it? So London, um, there's a lot of stabbings in London kind of comparatively looking at other places and cities like Manchester and, and kind of big cities in the UK. Um, and kind of where I work is, um, again, quite rural. So there's less of that kind of culture. However, 
we get a share of different types of trauma so so um the area that i work in so our hospitals are kind of we have sp- hospitals they used to be able to take every patient and now they've really um kind of moved or, or organized the specialties um so it's i'm on the coast so we get uh, kind of trauma in terms of um kind of cliff accidents and falls and things or big um rtcs like road traffic collisions um and it comes with its own kind of challenges because often um certainly where i work the nearest trauma hospital is about an hour away um or an hour and a half to a major trauma hospital um and so we have to work quite closely with or or i guess the uh kind of a lot of thought has to be put into triage and um kind of anticipated um clinical changes and things because we have to work closely with the air ambulance services so um hem services um and and make those kind of decisions so so yeah i think the day-to-day job in in terms of non um non-specialist work is is very similar i think we'd expect to probably do six to eight calls a day and so so we work generally and there's so many different um there's so many different grades technically because we have ECSWs, ECAs, uh, AAPs, and then you have trainee people in that role, um, and then paramedics or specialist paramedics, and they're all there's some complex matrix certainly in our service of who's allowed to work with who, um, but commonly you'd expect to have a kind of paramedic and a ECSW or AAP working together as a crew, um, and then often with a student paramedic um working with them um during university season anyway and um normally attend probably six to eight calls a day um and that that's probably a few less because our transport times are longer um so you kind of 30 30 plus minutes often um and th- i think what's a, a big change setting the time that i've been in the ambulance service is you don't get your downtime anymore um, so you book onto a normal ambulance and it's, it's job to job to job. And the, the way it's set up is that you should pick up your ambulance um, from a kind of central station like this uh, hub and spoke model. Um, so you kind of pick your ambulance up from the hub central station. And then there's <coughs> supposed to be, or there, I mean, there are standby points kind of geographically spread around. And the uh, model is that you go and cover these standby points. Um, so there's good medical cover throughout the county. However, because of the nature of of the kind of pressures on the service at the moment, um, or not at the moment, it's a continual thing, but certainly it's become the norm since since I qualified. Um, there's just a constant list of patients that need to be attended to. And so it's rare to make a standby point unless you're stopping for a meal break, essentially. Um, is that? Do you guys get that? Or do you get any downtime? Uh, it really depends on the day in what part of the city you're in. Um, the downtown area we kind of refer to as the vortex because you can run a call, get a call from the hospital, run another call and just <laughs> yeah, run yeah, yeah. laps. Um, and then kind of our, the, ge- the geography of our county is kind of weird in that it's kind of got like center core and then some like branches sticking out that we also are responsible for. So you can end up going down super far southeast or super far uh, north northeast and run maybe three or four calls in a day, um, because just because we need an ambulance covering that area, because otherwise it's twenty or thirty four, uh, minutes to get an ambulance to there from downtown, but there's fewer calls in that area. Um, 
Fair. So again, not not too different. Um, I think the the last thing before we kind of wrap up, then I'm interested in. I mean, this podcast has generally got a bit of a critical care kind of focus. So, tell me about um, a cardiac arrest or a code. Um, how yeah. how how does that work? So, a patient has a out of hospital cardiac arrest. Um, someone puts in a call to the ambulance service or nine one one call. Um, how does it kind of work from taking the call to dispatching ambulances how many of you attend what kind of specialties go there and yeah, yeah how does that kind of work um so uh 911 call taker will answer the phone they can provide telephone 911 or telephone cpr instructions so they'll talk someone through doing compressions um at the same time uh the paramedics so me and my partner one ambulance will get dispatched along with a fire engine and the cops will usually show up at some point. Um, though the cops are there like more to deal with like the back end of the cardiac arrest if we end up uh, terminating on scene and they're not really the like, oh, you're closest, you go lights and sirens uh, to this call and start doing compressions. Yeah, the, yeah. Fire um, the fire department usually gets there, I'd say probably two minutes before us on average, two or three minutes before us. Uh, there are four people they're trained at the BLS level. They can do compressions. They can put on an AED. And they can use a bag valve mask, and that's about it. Um, so a lot of times we'll show up. We'll come down the hallway or whatever, and we'll hear the like boop boop boop, no shock advised or whatever. Yeah. Um, and fire departments uh, initiating the kind of BLS component of the cardiac arrest. Um, we get there. We have uh, this high performance CPR sort of package that we do. Um, one of those things is delaying intubation till we get kind of the rest of the arrest sorted if it's not a presumed respiratory arrest. Um, so the role of the attending paramedic is sort of the role of um, what you could imagine, like if you go to an academic center, um, like the consultant emergency physician, um, they stand back, they assess, differentiate, and make sure that the arrest runs smoothly while not really doing any hands-on skills. Um, so they might be doing things like coaching the fire department in CPR or using the bag valve mask appropriately and ventilating at appropriate rate and volume. Um, because, and we're able to do this because we're double paramedic. So the other paramedic is able to do all of the skills. So they're the ones who's going to be, um, getting IV access and pushing medications. They're going to be running the monitor. So they're going to be the ones who's, um, administering the defibrillation, even though the attending paramedic is the one who's going to look at the rhythm and decide whether it's shockable or not. Um, realistically, we're both paramedics. There's not a whole lot of conversation. Um, you look at it and it's VTAC and you shock it, right? It's not like um, there's a whole lot of like conversation. Um, and then there, the driving paramedic is also going to be the one who's going to be ultimately intubating or dropping the IGL um, and kind of then setting the rest of the arrest up for success as far as how are we going to get out of here if we get rust? How are we going to set ourselves up if we do get pulses back? Um, all of that sort of stuff. While the attending paramedic can work through H's and T's, reversible causes, and kind of really um, put together a uh, kind of a history and figure out exactly what the story is. Yeah, okay. So so we, we do a kind of similar thing. Um, I don't think it, our support from the fire services are not, are not as formalized, but often... So we have, in services, we we tend to have people working as community first responders and they can be other general civilians that volunteer to do that. Um, or we have agreements with fire services that they'll attend um, 
again like Kaidek arrest calls and they they again have an AD and and BVM essentially um the I think one of the differences there is that we <coughs> tend to try and send two resources and um, to a cardiac arrest and most of them will get a specialist resource as well um and that varies so <coughs> you know if it, if it's um if it's a your standard kind of 70 80 year old cardiac arrest they try and send two ambulances um ideally with at least one paramedic um so not all ambulances have paramedics working on them um and so ideally at least one paramedic that can provide things like vascular access and um, advanced airway management um, because you have to be a paramedic for those kind of skills um, and then often they'll send us like a critical care paramedic as well to, to support those crews and provide some advanced interve- interventions if necessary um, but often as well we, we have um, kind of a broader scope of uh, withholding resuscitation um, and more experience in doing that and then for the special circumstances like uh, young people or drownings or um, kind of trauma type situations, we'll we'll get support from the air ambulance services as well normally. Um, and yeah, apart from that, sounds very similar. We're big on eye gels in the UK um, to the point that most people don't introvert anymore, um, and it's becoming a bit of an old skill. Um, and again, I, I think so. some services, like historically, we would transport everyone to hospital in in cardiac arrest and trying to provide resuscitation en route. And there's been a big kind of move to um, optimising resuscitation on scene um, and accepting that either that's going to be effective and we'll get a ROSC and convey or it's not going to be effective and we'll cease resuscitation on scene. Um, is that, it, it sounds like that's something you do in, in your practice. Is that the same there? Yeah, that's the same. Um, we're pretty more than a lot of there's some parts in the u.s where i mean well let's talk about like beginning resuscitation or withholding resuscitation uh we have like a do not resuscitate order uh in colorado basically we just need good faith that the do not resuscitate order that we're looking at is valid um there's some states where it needs to be the original copy on a certain color print uh paper and signed by a physician it can't be a photocopy and like if they don't have that then they're going to do a resuscitation that's a whole other level of not okay yeah <laughs> then for us it sounds super similar we do uh if we are going to resuscitate we're for the vast majority uh we're going to be resuscitating on scene unless there's some reason why we're that's either unsafe um or what have you but we're going to be resuscitating on scene uh basically until we decide either this is uh going to be uh we're going to terminate on scene and we do have to consult a physician and just say hey here's the story this was a vtac arrest that we've worked for the last 30 minutes it's been a systole for the last 15 we've given this much epi we've given the amiodor on we've shocked this many times um we are going to terminate it and the physician will give us the time to death um and then there are this circumstance where like i think this patient might uh for whatever reason benefit from a emergency department level care whether that's i don't know man like for whatever reason whatever the clinical story is this seems like tamponade maybe they just need pericardiosynthesis or uh all of our trauma arrests well not all of them um any trauma arrests that we're going to be transporting we're transporting immediately um and that's because our emergency department has a pretty uh uh strong uh emergency uh, thoracotomy guideline that a lot of times we're able to get a patient 
from point of injury to the emergency department within their time frame to do a thoracotomy. Um, so those patients were going to be doing essentially just BLS care on the way to the hospital um, for our traumatic arrests. Um, but yeah, for the most part, we're working on scene and terminating on scene unless there's some reason why. Yeah. To compel us to transport. And do you have, I know you mentioned you have a lot of the kind of advanced interventions that we would um, assign to like critical care parents in the UK. So do you have any advanced level support in terms of kind of like critical care paramedics or pre-hospital physicians that kind of support you in complex cases or? In Denver, we don't. Um, There are systems that have that. So I think it's New Mexico. None of the paramedics do RSI, but they have a emergency physician that they can call to RSI and brings ultrasound and all sorts of goodies to the table. Um, And there's definitely systems that rely heavily on pre-hospital physicians for um, advanced level care. Where I work in the mountains, we get an air ambulance that has a higher level of care than we can provide as well. Okay. And so, and, and with that job, you mentioned that you guys provide RSI as well, but so what, what is the level of care that they add apart from the benefit of transport, obviously? Uh, they can do some of the stuff they do. It depends on which helicopter we get, of course, because it can never be that simple. So they're different services um, that provide helicopters as well. <laughs> Oh yeah, of course. And they all have different scopes of practice. Of course. Um, so for example, like one of our helicopter services carries rattlesnake antivenom, um, which is obviously a huge benefit to those patients. Um, they can do chest tubes. I think they can do like subclavian central lines. Um, they carry blood. Um, so for the patients in the rural area, the helicopter provides can provide actually a really incredibly higher level of care than we can provide and give some actually like meaningful interventions and and what is the um time frame for conveyance then so like by road or air you must be yeah. out on the sticks there no yeah there it can be forever we can be like two hiking like a couple kilometers up into the mountains to find a patient okay um, yeah yeah fair enough uh, yeah nice so. and so um so there's there's been a few kind of questions on Twitter of stuff people wanted us to go over. I, I think we kind of addressed a lot of it to be honest. Um, I think one of the questions um, is about the possibility of moving from UK to US practice or vice versa. It's it's a weird one. Before talking to you, I thought there was a, a lot more differences between um, the pr- service provision, but actually it sounds like there's more similarities and differences. And I appreciate that might be a state thing rather than a national thing. Um, but I've had a bit of a read around and um, as far as I can see, there's no formal pathway for UK paramedics to to um, start working in America. And um, from what it looks like for NREMT um, registration, you have to complete their training. Um, and so generally on forums, uh, UK paramedics are saying they've had to do um, at least another year or two of training to qualify as, as a paramedic in the US. Is is that right? I don't know for sure that I, that sounds probably accurate. I think you would need to go to a school that has a paramedic school that has like a United States uh, like certification or has been like blessed as like, this is the curriculum that the National Registry will accept. Um, I think that's where you would have problems is you would have to have an education that like meets like whatever their standards are, um, even if they're lower than what you're coming from. So my guess is you would need to go to paramedic school again. 
way to accept. Yeah, which is what I, which is what I've kind of the impression I've got from reading around, and I think it's, it's similar coming to the UK. You know, I, I don't know paramedics from um, America, but I know people that have trained. We we have a few people from Europe, um, kind of Germany, France, um, Poland, places like that. And although, so our the HCPC will uh, look at their qualification and kind of try and map that across. Um, so I guess there is a bit more of a formal pathway. Um, but from what I understand, it's it's not an easy thing to do. And there's there's often, it's a long period and often people are then working in a um, kind of as a lower grade for, you know, up to a year or more at a time whilst they're trying to get that kind of paperwork and bureaucracy out of the way, which is it's frustrating. It's one of the, um, I think one of the frustrating or the, one of the good things about kind of medicine and those really established programs is the ability to kind of work abroad what seems to be um, a little bit easier than it is for us guys. Um, that being said, we have um, certainly in my service and, and in and London Ambulance Service as well, there's a lot of Australian guys coming over here working. Um, there's quite a big recruitment drive um, from Australia, from a lot of UK services recently. Um, and that's because we're, as a country, always short of paramedics. Um, so we've kind of looked elsewhere. But so there's a lot of Australian guys working over here and... and uh, because they've got the support of the ambulance services, I think that that system's a little bit easier for them to kind of map their their stuff across. So maybe maybe it is a little bit easier to come over here. Um, but unfortunately, I think it's not a clear transition either way, which is a shame for a lot of people. Yeah, I think it'd be really hard, like pulling teeth to try and figure out how to come over, or for you guys to come over here. I think it'd be pretty frustrating yeah yeah cool um i think so i think that's pretty much everything um there's a few other bits that would be great to talk about i'm interested kind of professionally and um so i'm I'm doing a bit of work around rsi literature at the moment and it's interesting to look to certainly read the literature around uh, the kind of the big players i guess uh, um, us and australia or um australia new zealand kind of territories um, but it's probably a conversation in itself, um, as is the kind of thing of research and, you know, maybe something we can discuss again in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, is there, is there anything else that you um, would like to add um, before we kind of wrap up? Anything that you think would be worth uh, chatting or any questions you've got for me actually around UK system? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is that my system, from what it sounds like, is probably... Um, where probably we're one of the most similar to the UK system in the US. Um, There are services that like, if you talk to someone at a fire-based service, um, that would be so different where you have six firefighters who are all on scene and they got their paramedic card so that they could be firefighters because that's the only way to be hired as a firefighter. So none of them really are, like they're firefighters first who like have to be paramedics. And so that, mentality is kind of problematic for the American paramedic system as a whole. Um, I'm lucky I don't work in a fire-based system and I'm happy that I don't, but um, I think that's one of the biggest reasons why the American system is held back um, is because of that mentality. Yeah, that's um, interesting. Cause like you can imagine it'd be hard to be a firefighter and a paramedic and do both super well. Uh, especially if your system doesn't prioritize EMS. Yeah, and I think without digging into it too much, I think, I mean, certainly in the UK, the roles are so 
dissimilar like we we often work you know on trauma cases and obviously house fires and things but kind of rescue situations and stuff we often work alongside the fire service and not only is their structure different they're, they're a bit more kind of um uh i guess kind of structured with um clear hierarchy and things in the fire service but but they're kind of their same priorities are so different um so they kind of you know they they need to extricate patient people or um like deal with hazards and and um kind of rescue stuff whilst we're focusing clinically and, and it works often we work well together often um but the focuses are so different it'd be hard i think to um to kind of consider both of those things at the same time having said that we have um so we have a we've got a hazardous area response team in the uk have you ever heard of those guys uh i think i've seen some stuff on twitter or something yeah 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 so that's that's not actually um having said all that they they do work in those kind of environments um uh kind of rescue kind of rescue paramedics i guess um but yeah i still think it's hard you know you can only fill your brain with so much stuff can't you so (laughs) yeah yeah sweet um anything else mate any kind of questions or anything yeah it's been interesting to talk and like i say i'm I was expecting there to be a lot more differences and and again it may be a state thing but I guess it can only be so different um this job around the world um but no it's, it's useful to to go over stuff I appreciate you taking the time to to go over stuff with me um yeah, and yeah absolutely. it's been a pleasure mate if you want to um have a chat again in the future about RSI and research and uh, and similar yeah. things that'd be great absolutely all right nice one well cheers for speaking to me I really appreciate that Take care. Have a good rest of your day. You too, mate. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.